Welcome to Aircrew Interview, I'm Mike Young, your host, and in this interview we chat with former CH-46 Sea Knight pilot, Hugh Breen. Hugh chats about what it was like to become a helicopter pilot, the role of the Sea Knight, and generally just shares some brilliant stories from his flying career. If you enjoy our videos and podcasts and would like to support the channel, you can do this by helping us out monthly at patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview, which allows us to continue to create new content every month and grow as a channel. I also want to thank our sponsor, Laco Watches, who are one of the original companies to produce pilot watches for the Luftwaffe during World War II. They produce both A and B dial watches in different sizes to suit all tastes, which adopt the look of times gone by but still satisfied modern demands. You can check out all their models and products via www.laco.d. Thank you. So, Hugh, when did you first become interested in aviation? You know, it didn't happen until later in life. Actually, when I was in high school, my one of my good friends uh, took, this is going to sound so cliche, but he took me to see Top Gun. Ah, yes. And, you know, for, <laughs> for guys who are in their maybe late 40s, early 50s, and who are, you know, uh, graduates, who have like a, what we call it in the Navy, we call year group, you know, I was year group 88, the year you graduated college or got your commission. And then what happened was, is when I got to college, when in college, I managed to go on a, um, a summer, you know, I was in Navy ROTC at the Virginia Military Institute. And one summer between uh, my sophomore and my, my second and third year, we got a trip down to Kingsville, Texas, down to Beeville and Kingsville. And I got a ride in the backseat of an, a, a, an A4, a TA4J on an air, on a, literally an air combat maneuver instruction hop. Wow. So... I'm sitting in the back of this thing, and he's like, "Well, I hope you don't get sick." I go, well, "I've never been sick on a roller coaster before." He goes, "This is not. This is going to be a little different." But <laughs> I tell you what, it was super fun, and I had a great time. It was, uh, it was one of those things, and this still happens today. When I fly, I fly for fun, you know, a civilian on the side, and my adrenaline. You get out of an airplane after flying for an hour or two, you just feel good, I, I, and I think, I think that's part of the. I don't know if people talk about that much, but I know just as even as a, a pilot flying Cessnas, you know, and, and whatever, the 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 I literally get adrenaline hits from flying airplanes. And I I think that's also the part the the really falling in love with it was, you know, going around and flying fast and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, Hugh, let's talk about some of your your basic training. Where did you start and what aircraft did you fly? Absolutely. The uh, so I got in my in my New car that I bought, of course, what we call the Ensign Mobile. I bought a 1985 300ZX Turbo. You know, it was a it was really fast for the day. Uh, drove down to Al- through Alabama down to Pensacola and started aviation in dock. Uh, it would have been probably late the end of May of, of 1988. So the way Navy flight training worked back then, and I think it's the same now. You, If you're a ROTC graduate or a Naval Academy grad, you go through six weeks of aviation in dock, which is it's uh, eight, uh, three three classes: uh, aerodynamics, engines, and navigation. It's you know rest, uh, search and rescue stuff, uh, survival training, CPR, swim swim a swim uh, a mile in your flight suit and your gear, or 500 yards, whatever it was. It was just a cluster F in the pool. Everyone's kicking, and <laughs> but you had to swim. Uh, 
we had to do the we did boxing believe it or not we actually did a boxing for a week most of it was it wasn't really hard um it it just was busy you were busy and and i did pretty well in that class after the six weeks of indoc um we did uh i think the hardest thing we did was that obstacle course on that loose sand uh, they had an obstacle course down there, which is brutal if you were kind of not ex- not working out as much as you should have. <laughs> and then um, after that, you would go to T34, uh, Charlie um, Ground School, which I believe was two weeks or a month. I, my, my, my memory's not as good as it used to be, but I, by, by August, I was in primary flight training in T34s, which was a great airplane. I did that, so that would have been uh, September, August through the through Christmas. And then I started uh, helicopter training um, in January, uh, did that. That took a little longer, six months, then came back, did intermediate flight training, which was about a month and a half, two months. That was just advanced navigation in the T-34, a lot uh, more radio instrument training. And then I started helicopters probably in March, which was the old Bell 206, the TH-57 Jet Ranger, and then finished up, graduated in August. So I literally got through flight training in a year. So I had my wings of gold while I was still an ensign, which was pretty cool. That is cool. So yeah. when you got your wings of gold, did you have an aircraft or a helicopter that you wanted to go on to? When I got the, the selection process occurs after primary. So you go through primary and then they let you pick what aircraft you would like, you know, on the preference sheet. Yeah. Now, the, week, the, the selection month, a lot of guys will say, well, they didn't have jets that time. As I recall, just because no one got them, right? Uh, um, there might have been one or two guys that selected jets uh, in my winging in my in my primary class, but not too many, if I recall. My rationale was when I went through and looked at all the syllabus, I didn't want to fly P3s because I figured that would be boring. You know, going a maritime track, multi-engine C-130s or P3s, that just seemed like like boring, and I wanted to deploy. Um, jets were cool, but jets was way harder. I mean, just in terms of time, I mean, when I thought about it, I looked at it and I said, boy, you bar- I barely got into flight school, right? I shouldn't have never been there in the first place. <laughs> and I really did kind of did the math and I was like, okay, helic- everyone I talk to in helicopters says it's, it's not hard. Not, it's not as hard as jet training. I just, it's not. You don't, to, you don't have to go do carrier quals, right? You don't have to go land on the boat. We did land on a boat, but it was just landing a jet ranger on a barge in the bay. <laughs> so, so, so that was, but it was really just a calculation of how good of a pilot I was. You know, where did I fall in? And I, I was pretty good, I thought, but I just I was so risk averse at the time. Now looking back on it now, I would I I would love to go do that training now. I mean, I know I could land on the boat. I'm a, I, was, I ended up being a really good pilot in my estimation. I mean, you know, but I'm very competent. You know, you fly your numbers anyway. So, yeah, I, I just I chickened out, basically. I'll be honest with you. Right. However, that being said, um, flying helicopters, though, on the other hand, well, I can get into that later, but that was the rationale. So then when I got my wings, which was August 18th, 1989, and just a day I'll never forget, and my ROTC instructor flew down to Pensacola and pinned my wings on me. So that was uh, Commander Getzinger, the guy who kind of helped me out. And then when you pick your helicopters, uh, what, what had happened was is um, at the time, you know, anti-submarine warfare was a big thing. And 
again, that was one of those things that you never got to, you didn't get to do it as much as you would have liked. I talked to a bunch of guys. They said, go fly CH-46s. You're delivering the mail, but it's the best job there is. And uh, he goes, you do what, what you do your mission every day. And it's a lot of stick and rudder flying, uh, you know, slinging loads between air, the aircraft carrier and other ships. I landed on probably every ship you could imagine in the Navy, right? Going on logistics runs, especially during Desert Storm. So so that was the rationale. And I ended, I picked West Coast and I got both of them. So, so that was a good testament. Um, and then when I, at, at my winging, Commander Catone actually read out the fact that I had no downs in, in flight school, in flight training, which was pretty cool. Right after I graduated from flight school in August, I had to report to San Diego in November of 89. And that's where you went through what they called the Fleet Replacement Squadron, or the old terminology was the RAG, the Replacement right. Air Group. And that's where you would transition. It was, they are, and they still exist today. They're squadrons designed to um, take folks from training, from primary flight, get them back in. But also, if you've been out of the aircraft for a while, they will... Um, they will send, you know, guys, senior, senior, more senior officers back through the RAG or the FRS to get refreshed, right? To get retrained if they've been on a shore duty for a while. Uh, Helicopter Combat Support Squadron 3, and it was there in, in North, NAS North Island, San Diego. It, was, it, was, it went from, let's see, November through April of 90. It's about four months. A lot of it was learning the aircraft, um, which you can see here over my shoulder, um, Systems, it's uh, you had to go to SEER training, which was just hard. That's <laughs> that was the hardest thing you had to do because <laughs> back then, the uh, Warner Springs, the uh, SEER training was tough. Um, we did uh, that and a couple other schools, I think we had a couple other schools in there, and then it was just you know, fly, learn the aircraft inside and out, uh, and you, everything happened pretty quick, so there weren't that many flights like you had in flight school where everything yeah. was, you know, you literally had to get in there and, and take care of business. But it was all basic stuff, learning the aircraft, uh, doing shipboard landing patterns. We even did what we call rocks and blocks where you pick up loads. Um, we did, uh, we even did ship landings. We did uh, ship land, no, no nighttime ship landings. Mm -hmm. That was when you learned on the job. I was assigned to HC-11, Helicopter Combat Support Squadron 11, which was in the hangar literally in the next building. You literally walked across the bridge uh, that connected the two squadrons. Um, and then I reported to my, next duty <laughs> to my next duty station, which would have been in April of 90. So, yeah. Wow. So what was the aircraft initially designed for? Was it like a, a jack-of-all-trades, master of none? Yeah, I think, yeah. Well, cargo. Uh, the, the thing about the 46... Was that you know had a ramp in the back? Uh, you could roll um, pallets. It was designed to you know you could put four or five pallets in the back of a forty-six. Wow. Which, if you have to fly over water at night, you don't want to sling load that stuff. And we actually had a an incident where I was flying with uh, on my first deployment. We were picking up a. I think it was an it was a pretty heavy load, maybe fifteen hundred pounds. We but. What happened was, is we wanted to roll it in the back of the aircraft, but we said, no, let's just put it in a net and we'll carry it. We'll sling it. Well, let me tell you something. We got going and that load became really unstable and just started swaying under the aircraft. <laughs> oh. And we ended up having, and it was, you know, it was dark out. There was no horizon. And I, for a couple minutes there, it was not that we were worried, but this is dangerous. And we, if we'd 
you know, but that was at the end of a 10 hour day, right? Where you're just yeah. flying ship to ship to ship all day long. And it was one of those things where you kind of just dropped the ball a little bit. But if we had taken five, 10 minutes, rolled it in the back, it would have been a piece of cake. So anyway, the, uh, yeah, it was designed for cargo, but ended up being, um, we would use it for all kinds of other missions. We did drone recovery with it. Uh, we did search and rescue uh, on my second deployment. We were a search and rescue crew aboard the USS Tarawa, which was an amphibious assault ship, um, much like uh, the LHDs. It was the predecessor to the LHDs, like the USS Essex and the USS Wasp. Um, but it was uh, designed uh, also for external loads. We did this thing called VertRep, Vertical Replenishment at Sea, where we'd sling loads between, uh, you know, especially the aircraft carrier and uh, supply ship. So that was a big mission for it. Um, didn't have long legs. You had two hours of gas on board. So mm -hmm. that was it. 2,500 pounds of gas. But that was the advantage of is, you know, you could put 10 people in the back. Like, just they'd hop in the back and off you go. Um, you know, the H-60 didn't have, the, the, isn't quite as easy to load in and out like that. So mm -hmm. uh, let's see what else is interesting about that aircraft. Um, a lot of people always ask for what it's worth, you know, does one engine drive the front rotor and one engine drive the back? That's, <laughs> that's a question you got. Oh, the yeah, other question yeah. is, you know, <laughs> the engines drive a, drive a mixed box, which goes to, a, uh, to the fore and aft transmissions, and the, the rotors are synchronized. <laughs> but <laughs> There you and, go, and, folks. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. But it was a Boeing, a Boeing Vertol. Um, the actually, it was even uh, used as a kind of, um, you can look this up online, the 46 was actually, uh, they thought of using it as a kind of an airline service uh, between New York and other places. There was a civilian version. Um, Kawasaki licensed uh, the the build and the design, and, and the Japanese flew a lot of them. Um, now most of them have either been retired. Uh, Columbia Helicopters, which is a logistics and logging company up in Pacific Northwest, they still use them, and I think they had shipped a couple of them over to Afghanistan. You know, some department agencies were using them for different missions. Oh no, the whole air—it's a completely different aircraft. Right. Uh, you can take a fort, yeah, CH forty-seven Chinook. You can pick up a forty-six with a forty-seven. So completely can, different. It's completely different. Yes, this aircraft uh, only has a max gross weight of twenty-three thousand pounds. I think mm. a Chinook is forty-five thousand. So the 47, um, number, just a couple of uh, little things you can tell. It, it has, um, it has uh, the gas tanks run the whole length of the side of the aircraft. The, the 46 just has these little side tanks here uh, under the wheel wells. That's one of the ways you can tell the difference. Right. Also, a Chinook has four landing gear. Um, the 46 only has uh, three, has tricycle gear. Um, nice. But it is significantly bigger <laughs> yeah the 47s are huge Absolutely. Um, but that's the primary difference they also even sounded different uh, 47 had a much lower thumpier sound uh, 46s were more of a they had a it's just they're, they're very different even in sound <laughs> i'm not yeah. gonna try to imitate them <laughs> <laughs> yeah but uh, before we move on to your operational side of things uh, how many crew did it actually hold and did it differ on what mission you were actually conducting most of the time it was four so pilot or aircraft commander what we called a, a second pilot or an h2p or um those would be the pilots up front and then you had a crew chief and a second crewman um, 
sometimes you would, because it's a pretty good sized aircraft and they always wanted someone to be able to look on both sides when you were landing, mm-hmm. you typically flew with four. That was pretty standard. I don't even know. I don't know of ever even flying with one crew chief in a 46. I'm sure it happened for maybe on a transport or moving an aircraft, but you always had four at a minimum. And, um, the crew chief, uh, was the boss in the back. Um, it, it's amazing how much I meant. Like when I fly for fun, I'm always by myself typically. And, uh, I just, the thing that I always, I always miss someone to talk to (laughs) when you were (laughs) flying. Yeah. I mean, going on a two hour flight, you could talk about anything with your co-pilot, but I had a couple of crew chiefs I was pretty close with, um, you know, uh, that I admired greatly too. They were really good at their job and they were awesome. And, uh, but they'd sometimes come up between just check out. They come up between the pilot and the co-pilot and have a chat with us or whatever. Um, yeah, it was uh, a crew of four. We also, when we were uh, deployed, we would typically have a rescue swimmer on board. Mm-hmm. So you, one of your your two P or your crew chief would be, or both of them would be rescue swimmer. They'd gone to the Navy uh, rescue swimmer school in Pensacola. It's a pretty tough school to get through. Um, and they would, so you were always on a standby, pretty much you were always SAR standby in some capacity during deployments. Yeah. So that was the, the, the crew. But let, let's talk about, uh, because on your, uh, your CV, I guess, what all your bio you sent me, you spent two, as it called in capitals here, Westpac uh, deployments. Yes. Uh, what's this about? And can you tell us any memorable stories from your time on them? Um, sure. Teams? When you were deployed, it was uh, on the West Coast. When you did deployments, you called them Western Pacific or West Packs. It was just a general term to refer to deploying. And uh, we would typically deploy as a two aircraft detachment on a supply ship or a single aircraft detachment on, a, on an amphibious ship as a SAR asset. And I did one of each, which was pretty new. And actually, at the time, what had happened was is uh, they started the SAR detachments because at the time the amphibs were flying Hueys for their SAR aircraft. And that was not a, pl- a good platform for flying SAR. It didn't have auto hover, excuse me, it, it didn't have any real SAR capabilities. And a couple of guys were lost that we actually knew. Uh, more than one Huey had crashed doing that mission. Mm-hmm. So they said, well, let's take the uh, SAR capable 46s that had a SAR package in them. They had a a Doppler radar and a and a big uh, big what we called the loud hailer on the side of the aircraft as a loudspeaker, and uh, we deployed those in single aircraft attachments. And that would you'd go out with a, an amphibious ready group, but uh, uh, normally there would be a carrier battle group, a carrier, a couple of dis- uh, cruiser destroyer, a couple of ammo ships, and you would be a two aircraft attachment and you would do logistics, you know, for the battle group. And you would do this for typically six to eight months. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of my deployments were six months. So the first one was Desert Storm. That would have been December 90 to May 90, May 91. And then the following year, I went on another Westpac, this time with the amphibious group on the USS Tarawa with what they called the 13th Marine Expeditionary Unit. Mm-hmm. So that would be all the Marines deployed on the four ships in our ready group. So that would have been 1st Battalion, 4th Marines, uh, which is, you know, an entire... Uh, Marine battalion, right? Three companies of Marines. And then you'd have air combat element. And then you would have, and this, this is what would make up the Mew. You would have a battalion of Marines, a battery of artillery, 
uh, a squadron of a composite squadron of at the time sixes, Cobras, Hueys, CH-53s, and even Harriers. Oh. And uh, oh, and you'd have a SEAL platoon or half of a SEAL platoon, EOD guys, and you get on and you go west. And that was the gist of it. Uh, the first deployment was Desert Storm, so we were very busy, flew a lot of hours, had to do a couple, of, did all kinds of missions. You know, one night we got called up and they said, hey, bring these uh, Stinger missiles from this ship to another ship. And so we had to go out in the middle of the night. And I remember that very distinctly because we were flying and they were, you had the the oil rigs out there that would burn the nat- to burn the, the gas off. Yeah. And so you just, had, it was kind of dark and just had that going on and we didn't have night vision goggles. So it was all um, just flying around 200 feet or below, <laughs> or maybe you might go up to 500 feet to hope you don't run into anything uh, and deliver, you know, do, but most of the jobs were just what we call lot logistic runs, um, picking up people, uh, delivering the mail, moving cargo, um, we would do Holy Hilo on Sunday where we would fly the chaplain around and hoist him up and down off all the ships because a lot of times the only way to do passenger transfer was just to hover over the back and hoist. Okay. So you could hoist. <laughs> yeah, because we couldn't land on frigates, the smaller frigates. So you'd hover over the back about 25 feet and hoist down <laughs> and they would hoist up. And that, you know, that took time. Uh, we had, uh, oh, and, and so one day we're doing Holy Hilo. I'm with my boss, a Lieutenant Commander Shaddix, a Tony Shaddix, who was a great guy. Uh, we're still f- kind of, I'm friends with some of these guys on Facebook to, to this day, which is kind of neat. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of a sudden, our NG turbine went to zero. The, en- the, the gauge, the turbine gauge went to zero. And, uh, but we still had the engine running. But one of the things, in, immediately you would go, oh, uh, NG, uh, NG indicator goes to zero. That means we probably just lost an oil pump because the NG instrument indicator went through the oil pump and onto the engine, you know? So we're like, okay, we have about eight minutes before this engine burns up. We got to get out of here. So (laughs) we ended up having to, you know, get every, uh, you know, get that hoist off um, and get back to our boat before the engine burned up. And we just made it in time. So (laughs) that was really, we did a single end. Actually, we ended up flying single engine. We brought the engine back. We didn't shut it down right away, but we ended up doing a single engine landing uh, right onto the deck there. And a no hover landing on the back of a ship is a little scary, but we did. It was fine, you know. And, and it's kind of a, the other thing that happened on that deployment was we were on a long mission. We were on like an overwater, like 80 miles, right? You know, 40 to 80 miles is not a big deal over land, but when you got people on board and equipment, and you're trying to find ships with, you know, that are radio silent, you know, we had specific limits. You know, we couldn't fly longer than 80 miles over the water if if at 40 you didn't have the, the tack-in for the ship that you were going to. So, I'm li- and, and I'm not kidding, literally halfway through, uh, it was at JR Pass and Dave Zimmerman were in the back and they go, yeah, I think we're leaking gas back here. And uh, one of the engines, we had blown a fuel control unit. Oh, it was no. just spraying fuel everywhere. We had passengers in back and uh we're literally at halfway point but it's amazing uh your training just takes over you just we didn't even i I wasn't even nervous because i didn't have time to think about it we just went through our our procedure we called up the carrier we called up our home ship we turned around got our ship to close with us as fast as they could um we ended up 
I can't remember. Uh, we 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 didn't have to. We just let it run for a while, and I think we singled up on final and landed back safely. But boy, that was terrifying. I thought we were going to just go into fire. Like after uh-huh. after after it, I mean, it was it wasn't that. You don't think about it until after. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then the only other thing we had happen to us was me and my boss were flying around one night. Again, no night vision goggles, 200 feet and below. And you're doing um, you're doing uh, practice night landings. I mean, it's, it's you can't see anything. The ship had changed course. And, you know, we we're probably on the last flight of the day, last landing, last two. And uh, we just missed the closure rate. Um, we were coming in and we ended up coming in a little too hot. And ended up having to, you know, wah, do a little nose up action <laughs> over the deck. <laughs> but uh, it's just amazing how that stuff could creep on you. It, just you know, uh, when you're flying around at night, there's nothing that you're just. It's like flying in a box. You can't see, you know, the water, so you don't know where the wind is, right? You, you just can't see anything. And so it was, it, it was, it was always fun. But we had, a, you know, a couple of times to get a little nerve nerve wracking. But it was all good. So I did the two 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 cruises. First one, Desert Storm. Second one was in um, going to the Middle East, back to the Middle East. We ended up in Somalia. So this would have been at the end of the, the end of 92, around October. We ended up going off the coast of, of Somalia for a month and uh, was doing a, a humanitarian uh, missions there. Fun, fun six-month cruise also. So it was good. We did a lot of, a lot of different stuff. Actually, we managed to rescue some Iranian uh, merchant seamen after their boat sank in the Straits of Hormuz. That was pretty cool. So my crew chief got a Navy Achievement Medal because he actually jumped in the water and picked them up, and we hoisted them up and and brought them home. So that was really that was awesome. And we got our picture in the in the paper back at North Island, <laughs> which was kind of cool. 